This is Market Pathways, your premium guide to global medical device regulation, reimbursement, and policy. Become a part of the global medtech community at mystrategist.com. Well, I want to welcome everybody to what I consider to be the first podcast of a new year. My name is Steve Levin, and I'm with my colleague, Dave Fillmore. We're the editors of Market Pathways. And Dave, you know, I cannot get away from the fact that I still think in terms of academic or school-based calendars. So Yeah, we're both parents, right? So Exactly, exactly. So I, I think of September as kind of turning a new page, starting a new year. Um, and in this case, I think it's appropriate because what we want to do in this podcast is really give listeners an idea about what the important issues that we're likely to see on the medtech landscape coming starting in in the fall and then working through the beginning of 23 which i i know again doesn't tie into anything other than a school calendar but that's the way i think and i can't help it so i think uh, i think that's reasonable especially since you know we're we're back after everybody's been in their august doldrums and uh congress is back in session and we're back i know i'm back uh picking kids up from uh practices and the like so i think it's time to you know take a new look at things so it makes sense to me well, that's great. And that's a great lead. And because why don't we start with, I think, an issue that's top of mind for everybody, and that is the whole user fee debate um, that's going on in Congress. And it, it seems like this is a dance that we go through every five years. Sometimes it gets resolved a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later. But why don't you, um, you've been following this closely and, and written extensively about it in Market Pathways. Um, give us a sense of kind of maybe where things are for people who might not have been following it as, as closely and, and you know, where do you think it's going to go? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, so people may know, obviously, like you said, every five years, uh, FDA user fees um, expire. They're meant to be five-year programs and every, and every uh, FDA and industry come back and try to rethink kind of what they want, what they want the program to be. I mean, user fees really fund, um, you know, the FDA review program for devices as well as drugs and other things. So it's really, really, really important process and program for how things get um, through in the U.S. And, you know, as you said, sometimes it's later, sometimes it's sooner. This has to go through Congress or, or it's, you know, user fees can't be collected. And I think this year is safe to say later. This is unprecedentedly, uh, if that's a word, uh, late. Um, you know, the, the program expires, the Medufa, Medufa 4, as it currently is, and Medufa 5 is the one we're going for next, um, expires September 30th. So we're talking 11 days, uh, as we're talking here, 11 days short of that. And we still don't have a reauthorization bill that has passed through Congress. That is way too close for comfort in, in, typ in typical times. And I don't think it's ever gotten this late. So, you know, that's we're, we're kind of up to the point here where, you know, uh, there seemed like everything was working fine. I mean, uh, FDA and uh, companies negotiated last year uh, a uh, agreement. It was definitely took longer than everybody wanted, but they they sent it in uh, this spring and it seemed like Congress was moving pretty quick. And uh, in, by June, the House had passed a bill that would reauthorize Medufa 5, reauthorize some of the other programs and also include a bunch of other reforms that typically happens with these bills, you know. 
everybody gets their priorities of, of other types of things, riders. Um, and then the um, Senate committee kind of followed through pretty quickly with, a, with their own version, with some different reforms, but the same old reauthorization. But then things kind of went off the rails a little bit. Um, the um, head of the, the, the sort of head Republican on the uh, Senate Health Committee, which runs this on that side, uh, Richard Burr, uh, decided that he wasn't too happy with some of the some of the parts of the uh, bill, and so he he decided to come in in uh, uh, in July and introduce some alternative uh, version that was just what we call a clean uh, reauthorization bill. It doesn't have any of those additional riders, as I mentioned, those reforms, and that started this backroom process of uh, debate and delay and negotiation. And we haven't heard a thing, honestly, in official terms since then. So you know, a few months later, we're still waiting for something to come through that would allow. Uh, FDA to continue to collect user fees to help fund uh, their reviews of medical devices and other products. So that's kind of where we are now, kind of waiting with bated breath to see if we actually get something. So, you know, one of the things about user fees is that they really have been successful. I think both industry and regulators would agree that a lot of the progress that's been made, let's say, in the past decade or so at FDA can be attributed at least in part to user fees and, and you know the ability it gave the agency to both you know add additional resources. So is there somebody listening to this might wonder, especially given how dysfunctional Congress has been across the board, not necessarily specifically aimed toward the medtech industry, but somebody could wonder especially we're coming up on a midterm election, Congress might want to, you know, get out sooner rather than later. Is it possible that um, this could go undone? Well, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, so, and, and I will say, and I'll, and you know, this is something I can mention a little bit, you know, it's possible and they may not be a short term high-pitched emergency as we might think for the device part of the agency, and I can get into that in a minute. But yeah, it's possible that it doesn't go through. Um, uh, but I think, you know, at this point, people will are, you know, still assuming something will go through. The people, the lawmakers that are in charge, that are kind of primarily in charge of putting this through, have done this reauthorization process uh, many times in the past. They've kind of been in, in place for a while. I think they know that it would be real unforced error to not get something through. So you know, not that that stopped Congress before from, like you say, yeah, doesn't always work in the most uh, best fashion. So, but no, so it's a possibility. But I think right now there's an expectation that it something will go through. Uh, is there a chance it's a little late? That would be a pro that would be uh, disturbing. Or is there a chance it's just the clean authorization bill? Or is it also going to include some additional reforms? You know, we could talk about. There's obviously been things about cybersecurity, been things about big reforms related to diagnostics regulation that have been attached to these bills and whether those will really be able to come through with this. But um, yeah, so there's a chance. And uh, I think, but as you say, the midterms are coming up. So really, it's almost like do or die by the end of this month, because after after September, not only does user fee authorizations um, expire, user fee current programs expire, um, as you said, the the midterms are, are happening. And that's when all, you know, Congress is trying to, people are, going to get out to do their elections in, in full full force go to their districts um the other thing that happened september 30th that you know had some tension or something urgency even beyond it is the uh not only the user fees uh expire but the government funding uh you know the federal appropriations 
the other source of FBA and other agencies' funds uh, actually technically run out September 30th. So as has been happened a lot in the past, they're going to have to come up with a short-term funding bill. So that could actually add even more urgency. They have to do that short-term funding bill. You know, that's something that could maybe user fees could be also attached to. You get those all done at once somehow in these next 10 days. And that's kind of, you know, but at the, on the flip side of that, of course, if they, if you don't get either of those things done, that would be, you know, even a more dire circumstances for agencies like the FDA in terms of having resources. You know, it's funny sticking with our, uh, school calendar metaphor. Um, there are no greater procrastinators than, uh, congressman uh so it's certainly i don't think it would surprise anybody if this happens you know at the stroke of midnight at the very at the very last minute as as you say either as a freestanding bill or attached to something whether it's a government funding bill or something else so it certainly would not be within beyond the realm of possibility to to happen in that way you made a really interesting point um about this bill possibly uh, being a kind of uh, Christmas tree bill with with riders attached to it. Why don't we get into maybe a couple of the issues that we might see um, coming up? Um, let's put off the the reimbursement piece because we're going to talk about that kind of later, just as a freestanding issue. But I think um, a couple of the issues you alluded to: cybersecurity for for one. Um, you know, certainly diagnostics, um, tap, um, you know, are, 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 do you think it's likely that we'll see some of these bills as riders, whether it's again, to this, you know, clean bills up or to an authorization bill or some other legislative vehicle? Yeah. Well, let me break this out in a few ways. I think right now, because of the urgency and the timing, I think that has made it less likely that additional pieces of a, a, a lot of additional uh you know christmas tree or riders etc elements will be attached to the user fee in other words it, it might be more bare bones maybe you know like i say going along with government funding going along with those things but not having a lot of other reforms that you know unless overall there could be some simpler stuff but yes like so 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 i think what is likely to happen assuming something does go through september 30th is you're going to have the basic user fee reauthorization. So in that bucket, just to say, first of all, before we get to those other reforms, you have obviously, first of all, the collection, the ability to collect user fees, and those user fees will be increasing that passes. FDA will be collecting more money from companies than they had in the past. Uh, and, 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 and in exchange for that, you know, they will be reviewing, uh, you know, applications at these new performance goals not very big changes from the past because we really just want to get back to pandemic pre-pandemic levels is the idea and doing things like you mentioned tap uh that's also part of that core package uh the tplc advisory program where they're going to try and sort of a very small um small small level at this point pilot stage to enhance their um collaboration and work with companies very early on even beyond what they do now with the breakthrough program bringing in payers bringing in patients and kind of Doing that, so that's something they're going to prove, and 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 sort of that that's that's what's going to get up and running. Um, and I should say, just to put a pin in it for a sec, I think that's those stuff are, according to, um, you know, FDA, are probably going to happen even even if there is a little delay in Congress because they've kind of come up with plans to do that. But then, yes, like you say, there's all these other things. There's cybersecurity, which has been a big issue, um, and, and, and there's been 
elements of the bills to add basically put cybersecurity in the law. Now it's not really a law, a legal requirement for devices, it's just something FDA has put on its, you know, in guidance documents. And there's, you know, big IVD, you know, reforms to really remake how diagnostics are um, regulated and bring in, you know, lab laboratory developed tests of, from high complexity labs that have, you know, previously haven't really been regulated, regulated by FDA. Um, you know, clinical trial diversities, all sorts of things. I think those things are, honestly, it's like we could get into any of those details you want to of any individual ones. I, I have a feeling in this most coming up build is going to be only most of those probably won't make it. Some of them will maybe if they're really high agreement on, but then we could look towards maybe, maybe later in the year, if there's another must pass thing at the end of the year, or maybe next year into some of these other things, um, it's what we'll probably have to look for. And you know what? I am guilty of, you know, we, we should have the equivalent of a swear jar, you know, where you have to put a dollar in the jar every time you, you know, utter a bad word except we should call it the acronym jar because I was guilty when I said TAP. There may be people out there who aren't familiar with that. Why don't you just take a minute and talk a little bit about that? I, I will try to refrain, but I, I, I can't guarantee I will totally <laughs> abstain from using acronyms for the rest of this podcast, but I will try. No, I, I, they, I don't think the actual uh, spelling out version TPLC advisory program means much more than TAP to most people anyway. So I'm not <laughs> sure if it, it's much of a, because that has an acronym within an acronym that I'm not going to even bother getting into right now. But, exactly. um, <laughs> but exactly. no, yeah, well, that's just, I mean, that, yeah, like I said, and that is part of the core agreement um, between FDA and, and industry. And, and let me just take a quick sidebar here real quick, just to say like that core agreement. So if, 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 if Congress does not, pass this bill, let's say, and let's say there, there's a delay and user fees aren't reauthorized and expire. What that means basically is FDA cannot collect user fees, but they can technically do all the other stuff in the agreement if they feel like they can. And I, you know, I had a chance to ask uh, Jeff Shuren, um, the director of CDRH um, at the, um, I was just at the Regulatory Affairs Professional Society annual meeting this past week in Phoenix. And and just to say, you know, what, what are you guys thinking? What, what if this doesn't go through? And basically like they have contingency plans uh, CDRH has actually more uh, leftover funding than they did um, than 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 the drug program does, for instance. So they're kind of ready to move forward with a lot of this stuff, um, even if Congress doesn't pass right now. You know, even though even if Congress is a delay. But anyway, so a key part of that, at least from FDA standpoint, is this is this TPLC advisory program TAP, which is basically, like I said, I mentioned it in the context of the breakthrough program. But it's basically like a, a a supersized version of that that takes some of the lessons from COVID nineteen, where you know FDA was like basically talking to companies and getting back to them at midnight, et cetera. You know, very hefty collaboration that's not typical. But it also brings some other elements, like hey, let's talk about your very early innovative stage devices and let's talk about what the requirements might be for clinical trials. But let's also bring this payer in from you know uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield and let's bring uh, CMS in and let's bring this patient group where impacted and what they think will be needed with all the effort ev emphasis on patient preference bring all those people in early um and give you the information you as a manufacturer need to say hmm this is what i'm going to actually have to do to get the indication i want is that what i want to do do i need to change things kind of make those decisions earlier in the process and that's their goal so it's kind of a early stage it's a pilot program it's only going to be like a few handful of devices at first and it'll bulk up over the next five years 
um, expanding throughout different parts of the center. And, you know, it's kind of something where, honestly, companies have been a little skeptical. Is it worth even doing? There's already all these other programs out there. Do we want to be spending money on something else? FDA is very gung-ho and positive about it. So this will be kind of a proving ground for FDA to make its case that this is kind of the future of how device regulation for very innovative devices should work. So, you know, I think that's going to be going forward in a slow pace, no matter what happens in Congress, according to what I've heard from uh, CDRH. Thanks for listening so far. This interview will continue after this short message. Market Pathways is the number one publication that covers the people, challenges, and opportunities impacting the global medical device regulatory, reimbursement, and policy spheres. MyStrategist.com is your digital home to access all of our coverage and read the latest issue of Market Pathways. Your support is valuable and makes us better. Please remember to leave a review and rate Market Pathways on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. You know, another area you mentioned, cybersecurity. And one thing I think is interesting because on the one hand, FDA got credit for naming that's first acting director of cybersecurity was Kevin Fu from the University of Michigan, who has pioneered a lot of research in the whole area of medtech cybersecurity. Uh, so that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is, first of all, Kevin never got beyond the acting director stage. And Kevin's stint at the agency itself was relatively short, and he is returned to the University of Michigan and still is trying to play a supportive role with the FDA, but they have not named a replacement. So the need to, A, address cybersecurity through legislation, as you just alluded to, is critical, but also having the agency really focus on it by having a permanent director who concentrates on this is another big step. And so, uh, again, credit to the agency for launching this mission, but they seem to have kind of taken a step back. So again, it's just something else to keep an eye on as we go forward, both on the legislative and the regulatory front. Right. And you, and you, in in the right. And I know there's some, you did some interviews with Kevin Fu, uh, while during his, his, his time there on, in, in, in market pathways, there's a few of those people. We just look back to see some of that, uh, some of that background uh, on sort of where things were standing within CDRH. And yeah, it's this question of whether they'll be held legally. You know, whether 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 it becomes a, a legal requirement or not um, to actually do all these cybersecurity requirements. And I think everybody's on page that that does need to happen. But there's just debate about how broad scale it will be, whether it impacts all devices that have been on the market or just new devices coming to market, things like that. But yeah, something we'll be watching. Talking about personnel changes, um, we were talking about FDA, but let's go back to Congress because we're going to see several key retirements. I mean, we're going to see a lot of retirements from this Congress, but as affects MedTech, a couple of of key individuals, you mentioned Richard Burr, the senator from North Carolina, um, also, Congressman Upton from Michigan, who historically have been very involved in medtech. And one thing we know uh, traditionally is that medtech is not an immediately obvious issue. Medtech typically uh, gets overshadowed by pharma and sometimes lumped in with pharma, even though obviously the industries are quite different and have quite different issues and quite different 
different demands. And I, I say all this just as a means to say it actually takes a long time to really educate members of Congress on medical device issues, unless they happen to come from areas of the country, whether it's the San Francisco area, Minneapolis, Boston, areas where they're familiar with a med tech constituency. So losing key congressmen from both sides of the aisle, it's not a really a party issue, but those who are familiar with the industry and its issues can present a challenge going forward for the industry. What do you think about um, these potential retirements? Do you think it it could set back um, any of the legislative efforts, or is there enough consensus um, when it comes to some of the leading medtech issues that we've talked about to keep the train moving, so to speak? Well, it's hard to say because Congress is weird. Politics is weird. How medtech filters through all those weird political congressional craziness is sometimes hard to break no matter who's doing it. But um, yes, like as you say, you know, Senator Burt, uh, Representative uh, Fred Upton on the House side, both people that very have been very involved in particular, uh, well, in generally in, in sort of medtech related policies, FDA policies in particular certainly past user fee reauthorizations and related stuff. And yeah, that, that brings institutional knowledge. Um, you know, it's hard to say because, you know, I mean, the reason why they're retiring, it's not, it's not a party issue, but obviously they're retiring because a lot of retirements happening on the Republican side is sort of the, uh, shift in, uh, emphasis and, and where politics is going in the Republican side. So it's, 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 it is happening there. And, and so it'll be interesting to see who comes up and, you know, how they impact the debate. I do think, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it's it's it just it just will be interesting to see like there's a lot of things out there already right i mean they put there's so many bills that are in the cycle um provisions that never get passed but are out there so it's a matter of like what gets picked up um and how much knowledge but i do think it will have an impact i just i just have trouble saying uh predicting it one thing that i think will be interesting in a short term though is you mentioned upton uh representative upton and you know, one thing he's known for, um, in addition to, you know, being involved in FDA policies in general is, um, the 21st century cures act that came through in, um, in, in 2016, uh, which, and, and now there is a, you know, a, a, a sequel to that, the two cures 2.0 that, you know, has been raised, um, and is now, you know, again, we're, we're in political realm now with the midterms coming up. So we don't know what the status of that is, but with his retirement, you know, that could, that could that could mean you know maybe that means that uh, does it give it less or more momentum you know it could take away the ability for some of those provisions or for that full bill to go the way it should have because he's no you know he was really its uh, top champion with uh, along with re- a representative to get um, and so you know that that'll be an interesting thing and that's important for industry maybe to use this as a segue because um, you know a key element of that bill that that industry was watching um, is is you know on the reimbursement front as I think you alluded to before. Um, where, you know, we're talking about, you know, a, there's been a strong interest and a strong push over a number of years to get a sort of more streamlined um, pathway for innovative uh, medical technologies to get covered by Medicare. This idea of there's almost, you know, this valley of death, as they call it. And, you know, OK, FDA is all improved. And now how do we get, uh, you know, things are streamlined, but how do we get coverage um, more quickly and more predictably? So, so that's been something that, you know, CMS was working on. And then, you know, as many, many people know, uh, they, you know, repealed, they repealed the um, Medicare coverage of innovative technology and, in, you know, in, in the, in this in last year, and there was some hope in Congress. So, you know, I, that, that's something that I, I feel like we'll have to watch out for, but I know you've been looking, you know, kind of at some of those, some of the issues with, you know, kind of the 
issues with getting coverage and improving the coverage process for these innovative technologies. Um, what what are you what what's what's currently on your mind there right now? Is it you know um, in terms of, in terms of that issue? Well, first of all, I'm glad that you spelled out. <laughs> oh, I did it, all, it very intentionally. <laughs> so now I can just say MSIT or or TSET, which is the uh, proposed or or suggested subsequent acronym. And you know, you, you really did a great job introducing this because a, a lot of people aren't aware of the history of this whole issue, and maybe they just heard about. MSID at the end of the Trump administration when it was when it was adopted. But as you alluded to, I mean, this issue goes back to the Obama administration when it kind of languished. Um, and then it seemed pretty dead, even through the Trump administration. And then it kind of popped up out of nowhere and kind of got got pushed through, um, perhaps without the focus that both industry and regulators would have wanted to give the issue. And as a result, it was subsequently repealed in the early days of the Biden administration. Um, the interesting thing about the roller coaster ride that this issue has gone through, and the reason I kind of walked through it, is that it's an issue that really has, I don't want to say unanimous support, but there's a there's a consensus that there's a need for this kind of issue. Both regulators and industry uh, all acknowledge that this is something that will help innovation, it'll help clinicians, it'll help um, patients. We did an article focusing on a report that the Stanford Biodesign Program did, headed by Josh Mackauer, in which they focused on innovators and entrepreneurs initially, and not surprisingly, the overwhelming number of innovators and entrepreneurs that they surveyed said that this kind of program would help spur them to develop more innovative products. But a group that sometimes gets lost in this debate are investors. And they surveyed investors and over 70% of investors said they would be less likely to invest in another breakthrough type product, given their past experiences with reimbursement, unless there was some kind of expedited pathway, because it so drained the returns and and the value of of their investors. So the, the impact of having a, and I'm just going to refer to it as TSET since EMSET is dead, uh, this kind of program really just has tremendous impact on uh, on the innovation ecosystem, kind of broadly speaking. And again, the, the irony about this is that you have both industry regulators and Congress interested in this. I mean, this is one of the few issues where you have legislative proposals working their way through Congress. You have CMS, which is obviously the most uh, direct path to re-engage some kind of program, um, which has has said specifically that they, you know, they don't intend to maintain the status quo. That was a that was a direct quote in a in a CMS press release. And, and they talked about being committed 
to establishing some kind of alternative expedited coverage pathway. Um, you know, the challenges from CMS's perspective is kind of predictable med Medicare coverage um, and sufficient evidence uh, of the impact of devices on Medicare patients. That was, uh, you know, that kind of clinical evidence and appropriate safeguards for the Medicare population were the reasons that CMS gave in terms of repealing MSIT uh, initially. And I think that the uh, one of the, the the big issues or one of the big challenges is, is, okay, everybody agrees this is a great idea, but how do we get there? And CMS, even though they said they're committed to doing it, I think it's worth noting, they originally were targeting this year, 2022. They've already pushed that back and said it's more likely that any proposed rule won't be out until 2023. And I think the big uh, I think one of the key issues to that's focusing on this debate is how much this program is similar to or distinct from existing national coverage determinations. And I spelled that out so I can say NCD from now on. But uh, I think from an industry perspective, there's a sense of wanting to keep that and see the framework and try to utilize that to the extent possible. Whereas I think CMS leadership is concerned that, again, going back to the issue about um, lacking data for using devices in the Medicare population, that they, on the one hand, want to protect Medicare patients, but they also, while on the one hand, want to engage closely with, with FDA, CMS also, I think this is a bit of a turf battle in the sense that they're looking to stake their claim to their standard, which is reasonable and necessary, not FDA's safety and effectiveness standard. So I think um, that's something that that CMS, I know if you listen to comments that Lee Fleischer and others have made um, from CMS, this is something that they consider to be uh, you know, an important distinction. So I think that the form that this program takes, and I'm going to say when, not if, we end up with some kind of TSET, Transitional Coverage for Emerging Technology Program, um, will likely fall on this whole NCD issue and whether or not they're going to really start out with a program that it has can kind of stand on its own or one that has more in common with the current national yeah. coverage decisions. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you, but I think, I think, I do think, I mean, I personally, I, I'm more skeptical than you. I will see when it, I'll, I'll tell, <laughs> we'll see when it happens. Um, about, I'm trying to be optimistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, so I think there's, yeah, I mean, I'm wondering, I mean, there's a lot of dynamics here because I do think that, Sometimes, you know, everybody, like you say, is, on, is, is agrees something needs to happen. I think what that thing is, it's not clear that they're all envisioning the same thing. Um, I do think, you know, CMS is, is you know, how they're going to, I think they may heat a little bit closer to the current policies and just kind of streamline it. It's what I'm looking to see, see if that happens versus there's hope in industry that, you know, maybe they come up with something more, closer. Certainly not. I know, as you said, you know, to get back to the acronyms, you know, 
MSIT is dead, the TSET, the transitional uh, coverage for uh, expedited technologies, you know, what that is, I mean, that's just another name that they've thrown out there. That could be something very similar to MSIT, which was, you know, automatic coverage for FDA breakthrough device um, for four years. It's not going to be the same thing, obviously, but, you know, is there going to be more requirements for evidence? Is there going to be some, a little more controls to CMS? Or is it just going to be, we're going to put a package around it, we're going to call it TSET, but it's really just going to be the current NCD process, the current coverage with evidence development process. But we've added a few little points here that may be there to, you know, speed it up here and there, make it a little less bureaucratic. You know, I think there's a broad range of things this could end up looking like. And I do, so I do think, I mean, what do you think of that? Is that, because that, that's the sense that I've, I feel like it's very, it's a little unclear of what this is going to be and how much of a thing it's going to be. No, I think you're right. I think that's 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 very much in play as a possibility. Let me throw out another option or another thing that that people watching this issue should keep an eye on, and that is the extent to which this may resent this being whatever program it is. Let's just call it TSET for the time being. May resemble a program, another program that already exists, which is the FDA CMS Parallel Review Program. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds. I mean, Parallel Review was launched as a pilot back in 2011 and then became permanent in, in 2016. But the thing about Parallel Review is, off the top of my head, I'm thinking, and Dick, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong, I think there have only been about four devices that have entered and only two that I know of. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's where, approved and, and got national coverage via that framework. So widely I, panned, I, widely panned program by and large. Yes. Right. Exactly. And and you know that when you, if you look at some of Lee Fleischer's uh from CMS's comments, it, it, some of it, it suggests um um parallels, if you will, <laughs> to parallel review. And so um I just throw that out there as a, as another option. Absolutely. And I do, but I do think, and yet, you know, getting back to our original conversations is, you know, unless, of course, Congress does step in, you know, which is, you know, I think a congressional bill would push things further along to something different potentially. But, you know, because of all the politics, because midterms are coming up, I, I think the likelihood of anything this year uh, from Congress is, is pretty small at this point. Would you, I mean, would you agree? Yeah, no, I, I think it's, Again, the longer we go, I think the the more likely we've got, um, if for lack of a better term, a cleaner bill and fewer of these other. I don't want to call them ancillary because they're that 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 minimizes the importance of these programs, but but fewer of these other programs will be added on, um, and I think that also increases the odds that this may end up being a regulatory creation and, you know, come out through CMS. And again, like I said, they've already kicked the can down the road for a year when it comes to when their proposed rules went out. And, and look, we all know the limited resources that CMS has. And so, so who knows when, you know, they'll, they'll ever, uh, they'll actually come out with a proposed rule. One thing to watch out for, I did notice that recently is they scheduled, um, they're going to have a uh, CMS scheduled their advisory panel, the MedCAC, as it's called, coverage, you know, um, for their coverage advisory tie that's in December, that's going to be talking about their uh, coverage of the evidence development program, uh, just kind of like uh, criteria for clinical on that. And I think I think it's it's a chance that CMS will look at that as part of this process, kind of like 
spelling out maybe different, a little bit more flexible ways of saying, oh, you know, the types of evidence you might need to collect when you have a, you know, a coverage determination through an NCD. And they'll look at things like that, little bits of things that they could do in that process as part of this policy. So I think it's worth watching things like that for shorter term signs of where things are going. That's, I think, early December will be that meeting. But, you know, there'll be other little signs here and there, I think, to watch out for uh, for the rest of the year on that. You know, as I look forward for uh, people who have listened to listened to this so far may think that the situation here in the U.S. is is somewhat muddled. And again, it's not all not as, as clear as it could be. That's that's for certain. But if we switch gears and go to Europe, I think that the situation in the U.S. looks crystal clear compared to the situation <laughs> that uh, that is has emerged now that the new medical device regulation, MDR, has become effective in Europe. So why don't we switch gears and talk a little bit about um, MDR and also the its diagnostic uh, parallel regulation, IVDR. And yeah. And let me let me just start by saying the the interesting thing about those who have been tracking MDR, it was postponed a year, the implementation date, effectively because of the the pandemic. But to me, the most interesting part of this story now is that this year, and this is something that, again, bears watching, you know, for the next, for the certainly for for the fall and, and into 2023, you have the two largest European medtech markets, France and Germany, their respective trade associations, pushing to further delay the implementation of MDR and implement some kind of tiered implementation calendar along the lines of what was, uh, you know eventually adopted for the diagnostic um, regulations. Now, again, we know that getting things done in the EU is an even more complex process, <laughs> as hard as that is to believe, than getting things done in in, in Congress and in the agencies here. But uh, to me, that was that was striking to see, have these, these two leading countries get on board and just say, look, we're not ready. I mean, and this is wasn't surprised to everybody. And we can get into the details of of why. Um and Dave, you've written a lot on uh the situation with the the insufficient number of notified bodies, for example. But that was that was really striking to me. And to me that's that's a big story going forward this year. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. And I think it's been an interesting evolution. As you say, you know, MDR got, you know, really came officially applying in, in May 2021 and IVDR just this past May. And it's been an evolution of acceptance of where thing or acknowledgement on different parties of like how challenging things are. Obviously, industry has been very, you know, stressed and anxious for quite a while. I think, um, you know, some of the individual member co- countries, as you say, some have been more just like charge ahead, while others, like you say, France and Germany have really, you know, just pointed out the, the the issues that they're dealing with on, on the ground in terms of actually just having capacity 
I think it's really a lot of it is about capacity in a broad sense. And, and, and I think we've seen recently, you know, even the European Commission start to come around a little bit more in acknowledging, um, you know, kind of where the challenges that, that are being faced with notified body capacity and other things. But yeah, I mean, it's just been, uh, it, it, it's been interesting. I, I, what, um, you know, I, yeah, I saw, I mean, they just, you know, apropos to that, I mean, they just put out a, uh, a position paper, um, what they call it just a few weeks ago that has getting a lot of attention, um, over Europe, uh, that uh, among all the com- companies that to, um, just regarding, you know, but basically pointing out like, yes, there are all these capacity issues and here are different things we might do to, you know, streamline things when it comes to like, maybe making the notified body designation process a little shorter, maybe, um, coming up with ways to, uh, allow a little bit more uh, collaboration between companies and notified bodies or not. Uh, keeping things a little more consistent in terms of understanding when guidance changes, things like that. But it, it, it's still really a big question mark um, in terms of how things are going to be moving forward there. Um, what, what, any, what are, what's like, uh, are you, are you in hearing anything in particular? I mean, are, are any good news or it's just kind of still, uh, still just, uh, you know, when it comes to the companies themselves, just really uh, running into challenges. Certainly running into challenges, but I, I, I want to, uh, if you'll forgive a shameless plug for an article we did in in Pathways, I thought there was a very interesting comment um, by Mark Pierre Moll, who is the head of the German MedTech Trade Association, and he said people are really looking at the wrong metrics when they focus on how many notified bodies there are. And it's something that you just alluded to, which is it's not so much just the number of notified bodies, which is now at about 32. And people will recall that prior to MDR, we were at about 58. Nobody really expects us to get to that level, I think, any any time soon. But there's certainly the expectation that uh, the industry will require some number closer to that than where we currently are. But what what Dr. Mole's point was that what you really need to look at is the capacity of the notified bodies. And by capacity, it's really a two-pronged test. One is the fact that under MDR, there's greater requirements for clinical evidence. And so there's more that the notified bodies need to do now than they needed to do under the old medical device directive. So the resource level needs to be significantly higher, and it is, it's in fact, is not. And the other is that what we're seeing with the 32 notified bodies that have been currently certified, they're not all certified to process devices in all of the areas of the medical device spectrum. So, you know, on both counts, the capacity of the 32 notified bodies, limited as it is, is still an incomplete measure. So I I think that's something that people need to keep in mind because it actually provides a, I think, a more realistic view of what the needs are. Um, And then there are other factors that we haven't gone into. One is, for example, the Udamed database. E-U-D-A-M-E-D, which was supposed to provide the kind of uniform database for medical device registration and certification, is 
so far beyond the or, or past the uh, the launch date, and you know, with with only a few of the six modules that are supposed to include uh, being up and running. So I mean, and you know, I, nobody that that I've talked to has any realistic expectation of when um, that will that will uh, be go online. Um, and then you alluded to, to diagnostics, and I think that's a whole other. A, a whole other issue. So, so I think there's there remains this level of confusion to the point where it really has the switch has flipped, and the strategy, for example, that U.S. companies used to have of going to Europe, getting CE mark, which could, they could get clearly, and it was it was understandable how you do that, so you could launch products early, get early revenue, get early clinical data, um, and then worry about the U.S. That has really been reversed. And so now companies, both US and Europe, are looking to the US first. And I'm actually hearing more and more about companies that are even looking to Asia as a secondary commercialization target, and then figuring they'll get to Europe when the dust clears and there's clarification about how they need to operate under MDR. Yeah, and I know you did. I think you did a piece a little while back about company, you know, for instance, looking at Japan as another good option, um, uh, uh, even though that for historically had been such a slower market. So that's right. uh, that's an interesting one. And more, even more recently, I did not with the um, a good example is a piece I did with a company called Caption Health, um, which is you know an interesting a uh, little bit of an interesting um, uh, snapshot into one. That's a company. It's a highly innovative, you know, sort of AI based uh, AI ultrasound um, for cardiac ultrasound type company. You know, it had sort of a seminal uh, clearance in the U.S. a number of years ago in terms of the AI digital health world. But you know, it it was uh, two plus years later when they are uh, finally just you know this year announcing their uh, CE mark, and that's so that's an example of certainly a U.S. first strategy. And, you know, that that came out for a number of reasons why they did that. But I think cert, there's no question in talking to that company that, you know, they ran into just a, they may, you know, the actual dis- the time between those two was a lot more than they had hoped because, you know, the notified body was just processed, you know, uh, was over, you know, they were overtaxed the notified body and process itself just took, you know, longer than expected. And a lot, you know, questions took a lot longer than expected to get back. And um, there's also the issue, as you say, with scope and capacity. And just p- another part of that just to tack on is, you know, just basic expertise in certain areas when you're talking about digital health and advanced areas, you know, notified bodies are trying to get up to speed on this stuff, just like, uh, other, you know, other, others are. So, you know, that there is, that's a, something we just ran a few months ago. And that's an you know, example of just, there's a lot of challenges all happening at once. And it is driving companies to, to sort of look elsewhere, um, where, you know, FDA is trying to think outside the box. Some other countries are trying to think outside the box and how they get these products to market. So that, you know, those are maybe more attractive right now than, than the EU system. Well, you know, while we're on this kind of global tour, maybe we can uh, wrap up. Uh, we've gone through the U.S. now to Europe. Why don't we uh, kind of move to Asia and uh, close with with a, a look at what's been going on with India and China? You've written um, about the situation in in India and uh, a lot going on in terms of a reform bill. And you know, what do you see as the potential? Um, for action in India on the medical device front? Yeah, I mean, India is an interesting market. I mean, it's obviously a humongous potential market in terms of, you know, population size, et cetera. I think, you know, it's a, there's a lot of 
challenges in the country on a lot of different issues, sort of just access and obviously saying things like price controls and, uh, you know, other types of uh, just infrastructural issues that may have challenged that market, I think, over time. The regulatory has been, you know, historically, it really hasn't had a device regulatory system. And you think, oh, great, just free flow and get in there. But, you know, that can cause sort of a lot of uh, confusions and the sort of distinction of how to, you know, you're dealing with that market, depending on the product you have. Over the past, you know, uh, five years or so, they have started to create a, a device regulation and they're kind of incrementally adding more and more, you know, sort of so-called devices to the to the to the uh, system where they're you know making it a little bit more like it is in the rest of the world you have this risk-based system where you know if you're lower risk you get less over you know less you have less specific data requirements and things like that and higher risk you have more and you know sort of a notified body like process etc um relying on some overseas as well and now they're really trying to push that to the next level where you know just, just a few months ago there was a draft legislation that was actually circulated that would, for the first time, actually add medical devices to India's law. Right now, they're really operating on what they can under pharmaceutical law in the country. And that, you know, causes could cause some discrepancies and also maybe take away from the resources. You know, maybe, you know, they really have had some issues with just having people focused on device uh, expertise and resources in the regulatory um, uh, agencies in India. So they now have, you know, regulation that would reform what they do in drugs, but also finally add devices to uh, that. And that that's something, you know, that came out a few months ago is under comment now. You know, we could see, you know, maybe some incremental progress on that by the end of the year. I don't know how long that will take to become law, but I think it just shows that, that there is a modernization happening in that very potentially big market that companies should be watching as maybe a little more predictability and maybe more a little harmonization with the rest of the world that might could make it, you know, easier in some cases to, uh, to, to, to get in there. So that, that's something, you know, just kind of watching, keeping an eye on um, into this next, uh, you know, uh, half year period or so. Um, I know the other place, obviously, I mean, you know, of course, nobody has to say another extremely important market in the in, in, in Asia and in the world is China um, for very, for many reasons. And, you know, um, but, you know, a lot, a lot has been happening there as well. Um, and I know, you know, we've both kind of been looking at that, but what, what's, what have you, what have you had your eye on and, and sort of feedback you have on the China front, um, when it comes to medical device and regulatory issues? So as, as you mentioned, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on China. And I think if I were to highlight a couple points on China, I would start by focusing on how China has changed and, the subject of medical devices in China has changed. If we were talking about this a couple of years ago, what we would have been discussing would be the fact that Chinese money, Chinese investors are actively looking outside of China um, to invest in, uh, you know, U.S. and and, and European uh, med tech companies. Now that has flipped and, you know, no longer can these investors get their money out of China because of changes in, in political policies there. So that shifted the focus along with changes that the NMPA, the Chinese FDA, has enacted, which in many ways create opportunities for Western companies to more easily access the Chinese market. So while China is not as much a story of Chinese investors looking for external investments, it's more a situation of China kind of turning inward 
recognizing that their system is not capable of providing the kind of innovative technologies that their growing population needs through native companies, and therefore the need to look to Western companies to provide those kind of innovations and make the landscape easier for Western companies to come in, partner with Chinese companies and provide that level of technology. Now, I say that overlaying all this is the issue of the pandemic, because the reality is that the current situation is that it's not easy to travel to China, not easy to get into the country. And so on the one hand, the regulatory landscape has improved and the regulatory landscape, by that I mean not only just getting products approved and, and sold in China, but also things like the IP landscape is improving. And so uh, companies, while again, I wouldn't want to be naive in saying that uh, you know technologies are going to be 100% approved and protected, um, there is more protection now that exists for non-Chinese technologies in in the country. But that is hampered largely by the fact that it's very difficult now to really travel easily and go back and forth from China. So um, I guess I wouldn't say the light's red or green, but more yellow in the sense that the opportunities seem to be improving, but let's see what happens over the course of the next year in terms of uh, the pandemic and in terms of access to China. But but I say otherwise, there's there's a promising opportunity there based on the regulatory changes that we've seen uh, recently from the NMPA. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think people should look out for some uh, in the near term. I know I'm working on there should be some ar- some articles on that front, kind of detailing some more of the uh, opportunities in China and particularly for right for outside, you know, multi, you know, multinational companies, they are trying to attract more and the regulatory uh, it's one way of doing that. But um, there's probably a million other spots in the world we could uh, pinpoint, Steve. Um, there's a lot going on. The med tech is kind of the, you know, getting get, countries getting their arms around how, how to handle med tech is, is a challenge that every, every country is dealing with. I know, obviously, we already talked about Europe. There's the UK doing its own stuff now after Brexit. But we, there's, you know, I was even looking at some stuff in Eurasia and Russia, et cetera, which has got a lot of other things going on there now anyway. But the point is, is I think we could, uh, you know, either go on for another few hours or probably wrap it up here and save some of those issues for another podcast. What do you think we should do? I think we've given people about uh, as much as they can handle. And I want to commend everybody who's been able to stay with us through this entire conversation. We very much appreciate your listening. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, you know, I hope, I hope listeners, uh, you know, subscribe, obviously, you know, we have a, a lot of uh, podcasts in the sort of in, 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 in the backlog that uh, touch on some of the issues in more depth that we talked about. I talked to Jeff Shuren last year about some of the tap program. I know, Mark's talked to Mark McClellan, for instance, of, you know, former CMS administrator and FDA uh, commissioner f- fame about uh, some of the issues related to reimbursement and uh, and streamlined coverage for, for innovative devices. There's a lot of other people we've talked to over the past uh, year plus on this podcast. So, uh, you know, take a look at that backlog and certainly subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Um, of course, all our articles are on mystrategist.com and you could click on Market Pathways. That's a good place to find a lot more detail about what we're talking about here. Um, 
But for now, you know, I think, you know, that's all. And I really appreciate everyone listening and we'll, we'll talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Your support is valuable and makes us better. Please remember to leave a review and rate Market Pathways on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen. 